Welcome to Norfolk. We're excited to worship with you through song and through prayer and through the word. So we wanna start with prayer. So we ask that you would join us at home as I read this prayer out of Ephesians 3. For this reason, we kneel before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we all, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God.
Hey, thanks so much for joining us. My name is Joshua. I'm one of our campus pastors here at Northview. I just want to highlight a couple of announcements for you before we get back to the singing. First of all, if you have children in your house, we want to let you know that on Saturday mornings, we're releasing our kids' video. We hope that you can find time as a family to come around and watch that together. At the end of the video in particular, there's some discussion questions that we hope can be helpful for you as a family to engage in some gospel conversations together. So we just want to let you know that it's a tool there for you to use. Secondly, uh, we've got something brand new going on here at Northview. Uh, this last Wednesday, we released the first episode of our midweek show, In Good Company. It's hosted by Pastor Jesse, Pastor Greg, and myself. And our goal is to engage with one another and with you in some meaningful conversations around the scriptures, current events, and just the nitty gritty of on the ground Christian living. So this last week, we talked about the mandate of the church to make disciples and how we engage in that in a global pandemic world. And this next week, we're excited to have conversations with a few of our church members about their experiences with racism, uh, something that's on the mind of the world right now. And Lord willing, it's occupying a lot of our prayers. So we want you to engage with us. Uh, we, we would love for your questions, your thoughts, your ideas to guide our future episodes. So if you have anything like that, we want you to send it to ingoodcompany@northview.org. We want to let you know about our congregational meeting that's coming up on June 23rd. Things are a little strange around here, so if you're curious about how everything's going to be looking in the months to come, I uh, want to encourage you to find the meeting package on our website and stay tuned for details as they come. And finally, a quick update from our elders. Hi, my name is Daryl Kropp. I'm one of the elders here at Northview. There's been a lot of changes in this season, and we've put together an update for the church. It's available on our website, and we encourage you to go there and check it out. Now I'm going to throw it back to Todd, Shelby, and the team. Let's find great joy in worshiping our Heavenly Father together. You are who you say you are. You will do what you say you'll do.
Do you remember the cliffhanger? That's what they used to do right before the commercials started on normal TV. I've had to watch some normal TV recently. And it's driving me crazy because I don't like commercials. And I've gotten used to the Amazon Prime and Netflix approach where the cliffhanger only comes at the end of the show. But now I've had to go back a couple times to watch regular television. My wife has been interested in watching HGTV every once in a while. It's the channel where you all they do is, is fix things and renovate things. At the end of each segment, right before the commercials, somebody's always falling off a ladder, and you're like, oh no, what's gonna happen? So then you have to sit through like the seven minutes of commercials, and you come back, and you realize, actually, they were only like a foot off the ground. Cliffhanger, tried and true method of keeping you interested, so you'll keep watching. You find that kind of thing at the end of a lot of the chapters in the book of Esther. In fact, at the end of chapter three, you are left with a kind of cliffhanger. So let me show you what I mean by that and show you where we left off last week so that I can show you where we pick up this week in Esther chapter 4. Up to Esther chapter 3, what's happened is that Esther has become queen. There was a grand beauty pageant. She won the beauty pageant. The king chose her. Esther's become the queen. Vashti, the former queen, she is gone. She is banished. Years go by. We're introduced to a guy named Haman. Haman hates the Jews, mostly because Mordecai, Esther's cousin who raised her, won't bow down to him. We're not sure exactly why. We're not told. Perhaps it's because uh, Mordecai is a Jewish guy and he has some sort of religious belief about it. Perhaps it's because Mordecai was a high-ranking official along with Haman and a foreigner at that. And Haman got the job of second in command in the kingdom, and Mordecai didn't, and he just didn't like it. We don't know. We don't know why. But Mordecai won't bow. And Haman decides, not only am I going to punish you, Mordecai, I'm going to punish all your people. And so he gets permission from the king to kill every single last Jew in the Persian Empire. They write it down in an edict that cannot be changed. They put it in all the different languages and they send it out to all the different provinces, all 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. And what we're left with at the end of Esther chapter 3 is the foreboding sense that nothing good can come from this. And that's where we pick it up in Esther chapter 4. So what I want to do is I just want to walk you through this passage in Esther chapter 4. It's actually kind of the climax of the book in many ways. And then I want to just give you some reflections, some implications of what it is that we studied together. So here you go. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. The letter has gone out to all the provinces in all the nation of Persia. When Mordecai, Esther 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting, weeping, and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. That image of Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes is so weird to people in our day, isn't it? We don't, uh, we don't do that when we're sad. We don't change our clothes and put on rough, uh, rough clothing so that our skin itches. 
We don't cover ourselves with uh, the ashes that are around funeral pyres. We just, we don't do that. We're not as expressive as that. We don't wail. We do wear black, though, or we might wear a black armband. There are ways for us to uh, exhibit outwardly what we're feeling inwardly. We're feeling a darkness inwardly. We're feeling a sadness inwardly, and so we wear black. We wear a black armband. They were more expressive in those days. If something really horrible happened to you, uh, if you were repenting, turning around from your past uh, errors, and you wanted to prove to God that you were really uh, going to walk in the straight and narrow now, and you were sorry for what you'd done, you might put on sackcloth and ashes. Uh, if you were just super, super sad, and you were pleading with God to intervene, you, you'd wear sackcloth and ashes to show outwardly what it is that you felt inwardly. You feel a a, a scratchiness, you feel an uneasiness in all of it. And that's what you've got here is Mordecai wearing sackcloth and ashes. And it says that he comes as far as the king's gate. So this is the, this is the gate to the palace of the king. And the king doesn't want anybody wearing sackcloth and ashes and who's mourning to come into his palace because why be bummed out like that? He preferred those people to stay at a distance. So the furthest anyone could come who was wearing sackcloth and ashes and was mourning would be at the gate of the king's palace. And there's Mordecai out there wailing and moaning. You can imagine uh, what that would have been like. The king's gate was always kind of the city hall of the ancient world. It was a place where they did a lot of business. Or if you had a lawsuit, you would actually have it prosecuted at the king's gate. Um, a lot of marketplaces formed around the king's gate. It was the place where people came and went inside and outside the city. The night, they would usually close the gate down so that it would be safe. But this is a, this is a pretty public place, and Mordecai's out there, and he's just moaning and wailing, wearing sackcloth and ashes. People, of course, are looking at him and wondering, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? They, have, they know that the edict has gone forward. They've posted this edict at the king's gate and all across the, the provinces. And so they know he's Jewish and they know that he's troubled. What he's trying to do though at the gate is to get the king's attention. He's not just moaning for no good reason. He could have done that at home. He's wailing at the king's gate because he wants the king to hear him. There's an old story from a, an ancient writer named Herodotus that this was a common way for people to act when something really bad happened and they wanted to get the king's attention. They'd go to the king's gate and they'd wail. And that's what is going on here with Mordecai. And it's not just with him. In every province, it says, there is great mourning going on. And you need to understand the, 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 the clever wickedness of Haman's plot. See, Haman could have said, we're, we're gonna, the government is just going to go out and kill every Jewish person on a particular date. But he didn't do that. He didn't say, we're going to send troops into their homes and kill them. Instead, he got the people of the empire to turn against the Jews by saying to them, listen, on this particular day, right? Pick a day, you know, July 17th. On this particular day, you are going to be able to go kill your Jewish neighbor and plunder all their goods. So you know that boat your neighbor has? You can have it on July 17th. All you have to do is kill them. You might be bothered by that, but come on, they're Jewish. They believe all sorts of different things. You never really understood them anyway. So there's a mandatory death day for the Jews. If you want to get in on this action, if you want to loot your neighbor's house, 
kill them first and take all their stuff. It's July 17th. So basically, Haman's turned the entire empire against the Jewish people. There was no hope for them, they think. There's a day of death coming, and there's no hope for them. You can imagine them passing by their neighbors on the streets, you know, neighbors rubbing their hands together, you know? Those Jews who got in my way in the past, oh, you're going to get yours, and that TV on your wall is going to be mine. No wonder they were mourning and wailing. The news gets to Esther, verse 4, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. And then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Now, it's interesting that the attendants have to tell Mordecai about Esther. It shows you that Esther's world is not connected to the people very much. Right? What happens outside the palace is just something that happens outside the palace. She lives in the lap of luxury up inside this palace. Everything's fantastic. And so it's through the grapevine, basically. Maybe on, on, the, on the daily uh, update that she receives from what's going on in the empire. Maybe it's just through gossip. She ends up finding out what's gone on with Mordecai. That he's wailing and he's wearing sackcloth and ashes. She has no idea why this has happened. She has no idea what's going on. But she does know that seeing her cousin, basically her father figure, in great distress at the king's gate causes her great distress. In fact, that's the language that's used here. She was in great distress. That, that word in Hebrew actually is the word that's used for being in labor. So, uh, you know, when a woman's in labor, she doesn't think about anything else. It's not like she's in the middle of labor and she says, you, you know, I've been thinking about our house and how we could redecorate it. No, like her whole mind is focused on the labor. It's that intense a pain. And that's what's happening here with, with Esther. She cannot leave this alone. Why is Mordecai at the gate? Why is he wailing and moaning? We have to find out. They don't know that she's Jewish in the kingdom. They don't know. This is something they need to keep hidden clearly because they're going to kill all the Jews. And so she has to send an attendant down to find out. She can't reveal her relationship to Mordecai because it would prove that she's a Jewish woman. So she sends an attendant down. Along with the attendant, she sent some clothes with him because the only way that Mordecai could come into the palace is if he's actually wearing clothes. So she's trying to convince him, listen, put on these clothes, come into the palace, talk to me, and we'll figure out what's wrong. Maybe you've lost all your goods and belongings, and I can help you out with that. Well, the word gets to Mordecai, verse 6. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Well, uh, this meeting takes place in the open square. You saw that in front of the king's gate. So lots of people coming. This is not like a secret meeting between the messenger and Mordecai in some back corner. They, were, they are standing in the middle of everything. And Mordecai is trying to convince this guy that what he's wailing about, this death of the Jews, this death date, July 17th, is coming. 
And he, he thinks, look, there's a possibility that Esther is not going to believe me, right? Oh, you're just exaggerating. It's not that bad. So she, Mordecai actually gets a, a, a written part of the edict, and he hands it to him and says, listen, you need to take this with you, and you need to show it to her. So this edict is proof. This paper is proof that what he's saying is true. He wants the messenger to show it to Esther. And ultimately, what he wants, what Mordecai wants is that Esther use her position and her closeness to the king to get them out of this mess. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who knows important people and something bad happens to you. Maybe they're involved in the government and uh, something bad happens to you, get nowhere with the underlings. And so you go to your friend and say, can you work this out for me? That's what Mordecai's doing here. Can you work this out for us? Go to the king, plead with him. Maybe he'll listen to his queen. Well, verse 9, Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. It's an interesting law, isn't it? You're not allowed to approach the king without his permission, basically. If you do, you die. Unless the king has a favor for you, he likes you in some way, and he extends his golden scepter. But there's no guarantee that he'll extend the golden scepter. And Mordecai wants her to go to the king. The problem is that there's this law in place, and she's, she's like, there's no way I can do that. To do that would basically mean that I'm running the risk of dying. If, if I were in the king's good books, I probably would have a good chance. But I haven't been there. I've been called by the king for 30 days. It's been a month. That's an important little point. The king never slept alone, guys. He had many, many beautiful women with whom he could spend every night. He had concubines. Remember, they did a massive beauty pageant. Every most beautiful woman in the entire kingdom has become part of his harem. And when he says, when it says that Hester hasn't been there in a month, that means that she's not been together with the king in that way for a month. You know, they've been married here for, I don't know, six to eight years. Some of the fire's gone out. Maybe he's lost interest in her. She's saying, look, if I can't, I can't go to him because I'm obviously not in his good books right now. I haven't seen him for uh, 30 days. Well, the messenger goes back with Esther's message that, look, I'm, I'm not going to do it, Mordecai. I'm in a good position here. I'm not known as a Jew. Why should I jeopardize a good position? Verse 12, Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, and he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. 
This is an interesting argument. Don't, don't you think that you alone are going to escape? See, your, your options here, Esther, are limited. If you don't tell him, if you don't go to the king, I can guarantee that you are going to die. God does not take it lightly when people turn their backs on his chosen ones. You might think that you're going to get away with it and it'll be hidden that you're a, you're a Jew, but eventually it will be found out. And when it's found out, not only will you have been shown to be one who deserves death, but you turned your back on all your people and so you doubly deserve death. God will not be pleased with you. The king will eventually kill you under this edict. You're not going to get out of this. So you definitely will die if you don't do this. But you might die if you actually go and speak to the king. So choose the second one. And then he adds this lovely little phrase at the end. Maybe, who knows, but that you've been brought to this position for just such a time as this. Esther, just think for a minute about how it is that you got here. Think about it. Think about all the providence, all the ways that your life has been orchestrated to get here. Vashti leaving getting angry and saying, I'm not going to come and dance for the king, and the king getting angry, casting her out. You won the contest. A Jewish girl wins the contest. Out of all the most beautiful women in all the empire, you won. You had favor with the attendant who told you how it is that you should dress, how it is that you should act with the king. The king had favor. You've been in the palace all these years establishing a relationship with the king. Just think about how you got here, Esther. Maybe it's just for such a time as this. Well, Esther is compelled. By that rationale, and in verse 15, Esther went, or sorry, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. All right, go, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instruction. I need, I need you to fast for me. If I'm going to do this, I need you to plead with God for me. It's usually what happened in those days. If you were fasting, you were also praying. Fasting was a way for you to show God how committed you were. Get everybody to fast for me. Seek God's favor for me. And even though I know it's against the law and I likely am going to die, so be it. So be it. If I perish, I perish. This is essentially her surrendering to the providence of God, saying, yes, I do see how you've brought me here, God. I do see all of the twists and turns that it took. I see it all. If I perish, I perish. Well, I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> You'll have to come back next week for that one. But listen, let's reflect a little bit on Esther chapter 4. I've got three implications that I want to point out to you, okay? Number one, you are precisely where God wants you. You are precisely 
where God wants you. All the events of your life, all of the things that have gone on in the last few days and years, as difficult as they might be, as unwelcome as they might be, as great as they might be, have put you in a position that God wants you in. There is no mistake about where you're at. Isn't that really what Esther 4.14 means? Who knows, says Mordecai. But did you come to your royal position for such a time as this? That language of have come is not actually probably the best way to translate this. It's a passive in Hebrew, right? It's probably better stated you've been brought to this position. Consider how it is that you've been brought to this position. Consider the providence in gaining your position, Esther. And what's true for Esther is also true for you and me. Listen, God orchestrates our circumstances such that the roles we currently play and the situations we currently face are precisely where he wants us. You need to consider God's providence in your circumstances. Just think about it for a minute, about all the twists and turns that have led you to be where where you are. Your life has been leading in, in a plan, I know it doesn't look like a plan. I know that it looks like it's haphazard and chaotic, but it's a plan. And it's worked together to bring you to this moment. You can say that about almost every moment in your life. God has brought me to this moment. And who knows? Maybe it's just for such a time as this. That God has been working in your life to do something remarkable. I got to be honest with you about something that I'm not usually uh, super public about. If you get to know me one-on-one, I'm probably eventually going to tell you this. Um, When I was asked to become the lead pastor of Northview, I was 35 years old, I think, 36. And I was a young adults pastor at Northview, and I remember thinking that this is a ridiculous mistake on the part of this church. Uh, Not because I didn't think that I had the giftings for it, but because I was so young in my mind and because I had so much to learn in my mind and because I've always thought that if you really got to know me, you'd understand that I'm basically a doofus trying to put this thing together and do a magic show in front of you so you don't realize what's really going on here. I actually remember talking to a friend uh, when, when they offered me the position, I, I said, so I've been offered this position of this really large church in Canada, and my friend on the phone uh, has known me for years. He said, really? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, why are you surprised? Well, kind of. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, me too. Me too. There, there are days, even today, that I still am surprised. I'm, listen, I am not pastor material. I wear the wrong clothes. Uh, I, 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 I am too bombastic, I'm too passionate about things, wave my hands around too much, I tell too many jokes. They did a, a meme of me on, on, uh, on Instagram a little while ago. Some people at our church, they created a, a separate account, and they make fun of people. They made fun of me saying I looked like Paul, Paul Blart, the mall cop, because of the shirt I was wearing. I didn't, I didn't know it looked like that, but that's right. Every time I sit in front of is this the shirt going to be right? I don't feel like I, I, fit, I fit the mold. I don't feel like I fit the mold. 
And I wonder at times, Lord, have, have you made a mistake about this? Like surely there's somebody else that you wanted to do this at this point. Surely, this is all a big mistake. I remember feeling the exact same way when my first son was born. And I remember bringing him home in a car seat. He'd been in the hospital for a while, walked through the front door of the house, set him down. I remember sitting him down in the car seat right next to our couch and thinking, what now? Like I knew what to do with him at the hospital. You give him a bath and the nurse comes and takes him away. <laughs> but now he was here. And I'm responsible for this human. Well, if you know him, you'll know that I failed. I'm kidding. I thought, Lord, surely it's a mistake. I think about that now. I think my kids are, are older and they're facing all the challenges that young, and, young adulthood brings. And I think, how am I going to help parent them through this? I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't, I've never known what I'm doing. Lord, surely you've made a mistake in all of this. I remember one time I was about to preach and uh, I did the thing that you shouldn't do before preaching. I, I looked at Twitter. I don't look at Twitter very often, but I did. And the Lord used it. There was a little tweet on Twitter from one of the guys I follow and it, and it said, remember, pastor, you're the only one in all the world whom God has called to preach to your church today. You're the only one in all the world whom God has called to preach to your church today. There's like 7 billion people on the planet and nobody else has God called to preach this message. Next week's message. Listen, there's nobody else in all the world who God has called to mother your children. There's nobody else in all the world whom God has called to be the husband to your wife. There's nobody else in all the world whom God has called to be the boss at your business or the employee at your business, to face that particular challenge. You are God's man. You are God's woman in this moment. Perhaps it's just for such a time as this that all of these things have been working together so that you are precisely where he wants you to be. Second, once you know that you're precisely where God wants you to be, you've got to take the next step, the next faithful step. This decision facing Esther is one that I, I am amazed at. Here she is sitting in luxury in, in, the, in the palace. And, the, the, and the, the author here really wants to emphasize the distance between her and Mordecai and everybody else, right? She doesn't even know what's going on in the city. She has to find out from her attendants. And then she can't even go down and talk directly to Mordecai. It's through this intermediary. And that's reinforcing that she's separate from them. She can legitimately choose not to get involved in this. She's safe. Probably eating grapes. She's the queen. Why would she sacrifice all of this? Why? She could say face certain death. Or she could stay in the palace. Which one would you choose? 
the lovely phrase, Esther 4, 16, I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Those are lovely words that probably should be written on the window and the mirror of every Christian's home. If I perish, I perish. They're words of surrender. They're words of saying, I'm not choosing my way. I'm not choosing the safe way for me. I am going to identify with my people. I'm going to get down and dirty and enter the fray. And even if it kills me, I am going to take the next faithful step. It occurs to me that I'm not actually really like this. I, I know that most of us probably read that and we think, ooh, we probably would choose the other way. There's lots of examples in the Bible of people choosing the other way. You probably know the story of Jonah. God comes to him and says, I want you to preach to Nineveh. And he's like, eh, don't really like the Ninevites. In fact, I hate them. So he gets in a boat and goes the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. The Lord actually has to interrupt his journey with a massive storm and a giant fish to spit him up on the beach in the opposite direction. That's the way that I, I tend to be. Lord, you want me to go do that particular thing? You want me to go and serve you in that way? I don't want to serve you in that way. And so initially I get this like, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I got to look out for number one, right? Nobody else is looking out for number one. So I got to look out for number one. A lot of us are like Elijah. A few weeks ago, I remember preaching a the sermon about Elijah, uh, who was really let down. The big, the big grand moment on Mount Carmel where the lightning came down and sucked, I mean, the, just the thunder came down and it sucked up all of the water in, around the altar and pr he proved that he was God, Yahweh was the one true God and Baal was not. He thought the whole country was going to turn around and repent, but they didn't. Instead, the queen of Israel basically said, Queen of Jews, she, she said, look, um, I'm going to kill you just like you killed my prophets. And Elijah takes off and he sits under a broom tree in the middle of the desert. And he says, just kill me, God. That's the way that we usually deal with difficult providences in our life, right? Just kill me. I don't want to go there. You're not fulfilling the thing that I thought you'd fulfill. Just kill me. What we don't say is if I perish, I perish. God, I see the providence. I see all the ways that you've worked in my life, and I want to take the next step in faithfulness. It's usually not the way it is. Esther's abandon is a model for us. Faced with the difficult providence, she takes the next faithful step. It occurs to me that most of us are facing difficult providences, especially in this day and age, especially facing some of the challenges that we have had in our homes and our work lives and all sorts of things. We are not in a place where we want to be. We are kind of under our own broom tree. We've been called to go to Nineveh. We've been called to go talk to the king. So what's it going to be? You going to look out for number one? You can say, look, I have to take care of me. Nobody else is going to. Clearly, God's not going to. Otherwise, he would have made things easier. Or are you going to surrender? You're going to lay it all down and say, fine, Lord. To follow you means to follow you, even if it costs me everything. You know what's amazing in this book, though, is that uh, Esther is called Queen Esther 14 times in the book, and 13 of those times happen after 
she says, if I perish, I perish. It's almost like the author's saying, yes, now she's the real queen. Now she's living into it. Take the next faithful step. What is that next faithful decision you can make in your circumstance? Look, I know you can complain about how you got here and think it's not fair that you've been thrust into this moment, but, but you're here now. What's the next faithful step? Finally, realize where this story leads. Realize where this story leads. There's this little book that I've read to my children when they've been growing up. It's called uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the subtitle of that little book it is um, Every Story Whispers His Name. It's a really great book by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and you can read the stories to your children. And at the end of each one of the stories, it tries to show how all of these biblical stories are precursors, are whispers about Jesus in the end. So kind of the idea behind that is comes from, uh, from actually the New Testament. Um, once Jesus has been re resurrected, he appears on a road to Emmaus where there's a couple of disciples who had been kind of following him at a distance who were walking along the road. Jesus sort of sidles up to them and says, how's it going, guys? And what are you talking about? And they're like, oh, you don't know what's been going on in the... In, in Jerusalem in the last days, this Jesus who we followed, uh, he was crucified, but then one of the women who, who was with us said that they saw him risen, and some of the other disciples said they had risen. We're not sure what to believe. <clears throat> Jesus interrupts them and says, you should know that the Son of God had to suffer before he was resurrected. And then it says this, this line in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's almost like Jesus opened up the Bible and said, listen, let me just show you how all of these stories whisper my name. So the appropriate thing to do when you come to one of these Old Testament stories, these characters, is to say, all right, then, how does the story of Esther whisper the name of Jesus? Well, Esther is about a group of people who are loved by God, but who are in the grave danger of death, aren't they? What do, what do they need? They can't save themselves. They need someone who can enter the inner court of the king, someone worthy and would be accepted in the inner court of the king and plead for the king's mercy on their behalf. They need someone who's willing to forsake the luxury of the palace, <clears throat> the joy of the palace, risk it all to identify with them in order to save them from sure destruction. They need someone who's willing to perish so that they can live. Does that sound familiar? It should. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't Jesus the one who left his heavenly throne, the great, greatest palace, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing and took the form of a servant? He even went to the cross. He identified with his people, went to the cross, willing to perish on their behalf. The difference between him and Esther is Esther was just willing to perish with the possibility that she wouldn't. Jesus actually did perish so his people could go free. So in a very real sense, this story, this Esther, 
is whispering the name of Jesus. Do you see it? So when you go away from this, what you should be rejoicing in is the fact that even though you and I are not really good at taking the next faithful steps to obedience, even though we want to be Esther, the truth is we're more like Mordecai and the people wailing at the gate in need of a Savior and a greater Esther has come and saved us. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace, and I'm thankful ultimately uh, that our Lord Jesus left his heavenly home, risked it all, lost it all, so that we could gain it all. I pray that that knowledge would fill us with joy today, that all of these stories would point to the grace that we have in Christ and the joy that we have in Christ. We pray, Father, for us to understand your ways with us and the difficulties we face and help us to open our hands to what it is that you have to give and to take those next faithful steps, recognizing that we are exactly where you want us to be. And we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. Another way that we worship our Lord is through giving. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul actually calls giving an act of grace. Not only that we're being gracious when we give, but it's a grace that we can give. Uh, it's a gift from the Lord that we have something to give back. Uh, and so we want to worship him in that way as a church. And so we have a number of ways for you to give here at Northview. You could give online through our website. You could use the text to give option. That's probably a number showing up on your screen somewhere. Uh, or you could give by check. You could mail it to the Downs Road campus, or you could bring it yourself on Mondays during our public office hours. Now let's join the team again as we sing one more song together.
Well, thanks so much for joining us this week. Let me send us off with a word from Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. We hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time.